I knocked on the half-open door of the hospital room at Abbott Northwestern, where I was a chaplain intern this fall. On the bed lay a woman whose foot was bandaged, and I could see that some of her toes had been amputated. She was also connected to a heart monitor. She was just finishing up her dinner when I introduced myself as a chaplain and asked her if now would be a good time to talk. She smiled at me warmly and invited me to sit down beside her bed. Her sunny disposition put me at ease right away. I thought I was supposed to be putting her at ease. (laughs) I sat down and I asked her how she was coping with being hospitalized, and she simply began telling me her story. She was a 40-year-old woman who was homeless. She had been the victim of rape as she slept on friends and acquaintances' couches from night to night. She told me stories filled with pain. Her foot had been amputated, her health poor, stories of loss and grief about her children, troubled relationships, and her inability to hold down a job due to these health conditions. Yet, her faith was so strong. She spoke of her deep Christian faith in God and the healing power of Jesus. I asked her, though, do you ever get angry with God? I wanted to give her permission to get angry and make room for doubt. But she replied, no, never. I could never get angry with God. It's God that gets me through. So I lifted up her laments and her gratitudes in prayer, as we are taught to do in chaplaincy, and I celebrated her strong faith. But I wondered many times, with patients like these, what gets them through? What gets us Unitarian Universalists through deep loss and pain? Some of us don't believe in God or the God we learned about in childhood. But suffering is part of being alive. It comes with being human. I wish it wasn't so for you and everyone that I love. A mentor and minister friend of mine has stage four terminal cancer. He has two young children and a congregation that love him. It's so hard to see him in pain. He used to be able to ride his bike to the park with his daughter or go to his son's baseball game. But now he's lucky if he's out of the fog of the pain medication long enough to read his children a bedtime story. But suffering is here to stay, and it is as constant as breathing in and breathing out. One of my pastoral care professors, Bob Elbers, suggests that caregiving is the art of involving oneself in the reality of the life of another person and allowing the image of the sacred in us to respond to the reality of the sacred in another. Caregiving is the realization that people are not so much looking for an answer as they are seeking to be understood. Just our presence and attentive listening is enough. Our reading this morning was taken from the book of Job. This beautiful story, it is one of the most powerful yet mysterious stories in the Bible, and one that contains ambiguity and doesn't give us all the answers or soothe all of our woes. Instead, it wrestles with life's toughest conundrum, the problem of human suffering, and God's involvement in the pain of the world. For those of you who don't remember or are not familiar with the book of Job, let me give you a brief synopsis. God wagers with the adversary. 
Uh, many Christian traditions uh, called the Satan, but in the original Hebrew, the adversary is Ha-Satan, which means the Satan. Um, and that was more of a role of an accuser or an adversary rather than a proper name. So this adversary wages, wagers with God that Job, being a man of utter purity and integrity, will not curse him. No matter what happens, um, he will not curse God. So first, the adversary destroys all of Job's property, farm animals, and he kills all of Job's children, seven sons and three daughters. Job does not curse God. So the adversary brings lesions to Job's skin, takes away his health, and brings him pain. Still, Job does not curse God. Job, in his suffering and poverty, sitting on a heap of ashes, is approached by longtime friends. After a gentle week of silence, each explains that if Job is suffering, it must be because he did, he did something wrong. Of this, they are utterly sure. This is the origin of the adage, with friends who needs enemies. <laughs> Finding these friends miserable consolers, Job wishes to air his complaint to God directly knowing that such a request is nearly blasphemous. God appears out of the whirlwind before Job to hear his complaint. However, God does not address Job's basic question about justice and human suffering. Instead, God quite beautifully and eloquently speaks of God's great and mysterious powers. God even mocks Job, who in his complaint seems arrogant to question the ways of God. Our efforts to find the cause of suffering often lead us to put the blame somewhere, on self, others, or even God. The book of Job asks us to look beyond blame, accept ambiguity and uncertainty, and to surrender to the fact that we are not in control of everything in our life. Unfortunately for Job, his friends did a lousy job of consoling him. Although they began with silence, like I was taught to do in chaplaincy, each proceeded to explain why Job is suffering. One friend urges him not to lose heart since the innocent never finally suffer. Another wonders, does God pervert justice? He asks Job to seek God and make supplication, and if he is pure and upright, then God will help Job. Finally, Job's least sympathetic friend suggests that Job is suffering because God knows he's a sinner and asks him to repent. Costa Rican biblical professor and author Elsa Tamez suggests that perhaps it is Job's friends who should keep silent, because Job is the one who suffers injustices and experiences its consequences in his flesh and blood. They deny with words the pain and suffering they see with their eyes. This is what I learned at the hospital and when I do pastoral care visits here at First Universalist. It is more about listening than giving answers. Job's friends gave him empty theology. What Job long, longs for is to be understood by his friends and by God. I know I've been using the word God a lot in this sermon, but I would encourage you to hear this word with an open heart and a spirit of curiosity. If it is helpful, think of God as the spirit of life and love, the holy mystery or as my favorite theologian, Paul Tillich, says, the ground of our being. Not a being out there, but the ground that holds us, 
a ground that includes joy, pain, gratitude, suffering, and oppression. When God finally does speak in Job 38, parts of that which I read earlier, it is not the great patriarch who Job expects to be just, intervening directly to vindicate righteousness conduct, righteous conduct and punish wickedness. Instead, we are offered a compelling image of a God who speaks of the ordering of creation, the foundation of the earth, the birthing of the sea, the ordering of day and night. This God doesn't directly address Job's question about suffering and oppression. Forces of chaos and moral evil remain a part of the fabric of the world. And it does remain a human task to wrestle what, with what to do in response to suffering. Job would like to conclude that the innocent suffering has to imply the injustice of God. Instead, we are offered a new image of God, one that Unitarian Universalists can more readily relate to. God as the power for life, balancing the needs of all creatures, not just humans, cherishing freedom, and acknowledging the deep interconnectedness of death and life. Every desolate corner of the world Every being, no matter how forlorn, is part of this love. No one, not even Job in his misery, is God-forsaken. The story of Job implies that suffering is simply part of the world. If you step off a cliff, you will be smashed at the bottom by the same gravity that makes life possible in the first place. The story affirms that the chaotic is present in the world, but there is more here than suffering. Retributive justice does not guarantee that the good will prosper and the wicked suffer. Bad things can and do happen to good people. Sometimes I wonder if the societal forces of consumerism, racism, and our lack of connection with the ground of our being lures us falsely into believing that we can simply choose our life. By making the right choices, by working hard, by following the rules, our lives are in our control and will be okay. But sometimes life chooses you. For the woman I met in the hospital that day, life chose her. So when bad things happen, where do we turn? To whom do we turn? Does fate guide the world or can our individual and collective choices make the world a more fair and just place? Perhaps a religious response to tragedy need not be solely about God. It can be about how the sufferer responds, with acceptance or rage, or with a new understanding of how life works. It can be about how others respond to his pain, his or her pain, with pious explanations or with hugs and shared tears. Our faith reminds us that we are a tradition grounded in our commitment and our covenant to one another. We are asked to look beyond blame, accept ambiguity and uncertainty, and to dare to love one another and show up for one another without necessarily answers, prescriptions, or lectures, but because there's something that happens when we really see each other. That's where the sacred is moving. For me, God might be better described as a verb or an action God is when we put our faith in this beloved community and our big, beautiful earth, where we see evidence of the holy mystery every day. 
and we feel connected to it and grounded by it. For me, connecting with God replaces illusions of control with gratitude and humility. Humans are not the center of the universe, but instead we are part of the world, connected to all the other parts. This is the vision of God that we can learn from in the story of Job, and that can help save us now. Finally, as we heard through Rebecca Solnit's words quoted last Sunday, there is hope that another world is possible, not promised, not guaranteed. To hope is to give yourself to the future, and that commitment to the future makes the present habitable. I see hope in this church and our beloved minister's response to the shooting tragedies last week by protesting at the governor's mansion, by willing to be smoke bombed to shut down Highway 94 and Highway 35W, by attending the protest at the Star Tribune to call out their biased reporting, and by showing up here last Sunday to grieve and lament these awful tragedies and find strength to keep working for racial justice, even when it seems overwhelming and hopeless. I also see great hope in the creative, courageous, and nonviolent leaders of the Black Lives Matter movement. Instead of my heart simply breaking open, simply breaking in response to the tragedies in France, Orlando, and St. Paul, my connection to, to God this God that I call the power and ground of being, calls me to join with a million other hearts, to realize that choosing communion over isolation will help us act together to heal the world. As Reverend Elaine said last week, we will all continue to be here, right here together, remembering the fundamental love that surrounds us, calling us to our best selves, and remembering that it will not let us go even in times of trauma, fear, and devastation. There is a greater love calling us to imagine and build together a world where we can all be free. In the words of Barbara Peskin, often we are found in our grief and we are calmed and comforted by some kindness, brought alive by beauty that catches us undefended. Love abides, even beyond anger even beyond death. We are held in an embrace invisible but infinite, moving with all creation. And we, with steps uncertain, move on to whatever is next. May it be so for us as well. Amen. <laughs>